think it's that bad, but you know. And if you've got a Bible, you can open up to Exodus chapter 20 this morning as we continue to look uh, at the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20. would I'd ask uh, just selfishly if y'all would pray for us right after I'm done I'm walking off stage gonna drive to Denver uh it's snowing so it was either do that or get on a airplane and follow Fauci's rules and I didn't want to do that so I didn't think I could make a bag of M&Ms last like a whole hour to keep my mask off so so we're gonna drive so anyways if you would please stand uh, to honor the the reading of God's word this morning Exodus chapter 20, we're going to start in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for all you've given us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for what it shows us. Uh, I pray today that uh, as I think we will all once again see we are guilty uh, of this commandment, of breaking this commandment. And so we thank you that because of Jesus, our sins, although they may be many, his mercy is so much more. So help us to see Jesus today. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So just by way of review... The first commandment is there is one God and you will worship him only. The second commandment is since there is one God, he wants to be worshipped correctly. So we don't fashion an image or, or something that we worship that God through. We worship him alone. The third commandment is since there's one God and he wants to be worshipped correctly, we don't take that God's name in vain. So in other words, we don't take his name flippantly or, or irreverently when we speak of him. The fourth commandment is that one day out of seven, we should take a day to rest, to refocus, and to remember the gospel. The fifth commandment is honor your parents. And as we said last week, this is the bridge uh, between the two tables of, of commandments. That, that, that the first four deal with our vertical relationship with God. The last five deal with our horizontal relationship with others. And so if we can honor our parents and we can show honor in the home, then therefore we can show honor outside of the home. The sixth commandment is no murder. is how it literally reads and so we do this when we physically take life. We, we talked about that last week when we murder. We talked about abortion. The old things are, are murder. But Jesus said we do this when we devalue the image of God that is found in, 
in another human being. So that can be done by, by running them down. That can be done by breaking down people into statistics or into categories. It can be done by neglecting the poor, the book of James says. Or it can be done by not sharing the gospel with those around us. And so what we said last week is that we're all guilty of violating this command, that, that all of us have in some way committed murder, that we all have blood on our hands, and that our only solution then is to look to Jesus, who is the one who kept this command, Jesus who was murdered for murderers, so that we could be, receive grace and be brought into the presence of God. Now we live in this unprecedented time uh, in human history when it comes to answering the question of who am I? You know, if you look back through most of history, the way we answered that question had to do with issues like culture or ethnicity, uh, education, maybe your family, maybe your religion, or maybe the part of the country that you grew up in. All those things kind of anchored you and helped you understand who you are. But today, the question of who am I is answered almost exclusively in terms of sexuality and sexual orientation. So the old categories, male and female, have been removed from our vocabulary and they've been replaced with, well, no one can tell me what my orientation is or even what my gender is. David Strain, who helped me tremendously with this sermon, put it this way, my orientation and gender are specific to me, knowable only by me. I define my gender and sexuality idiosyncratically. I am my sexuality, and my sexuality is defined by me and no one else. Freestanding and independent of my anatomy, whether I am male or female, some combination of both or neither, has nothing to do with my body. I identify it, I define it, I determine it. See, there is no one-size-fits-all sexual ethic anymore. It's determined and defined by each individual person alone. That's how our society looks at it. So we can't say homosexuality is wrong. We can't say that polygamy is wrong because they'll just respond by saying, well, that's who I am. In my lifetime, we will see polygamy normalized. In my lifetime, you will see polyandry normalized. If you don't know what that is, that's swinging. Open relationships, it's already on the move. You can go to Amazon right now. Some of the best-selling books are on open marriages, open relationships, those sort of things. And folks, the sad one is, and I don't think anybody would argue with me, in my lifetime, I'm afraid you'll see pedophilia normalized. I mean, we all know, go to Netflix. We've all seen the uproar for the movie that they will not remove. Why? Because that's where we're headed. What does this got to do with the, the seventh commandment, right? Well, the command, you shall not commit adultery, deals with more than just marital infidelity, okay? It's that big heading for an entire category of sexual sin. Like, I could have titled this sermon, Stop Being a Pervert, okay? I mean, it's what we could have done. Because the reality is this, is that if you can't be faithful in your marriage, then you can't be faithful to the first commandment, which is to love the Lord your God only, See, Jesus made that clear when he didn't abolish the seventh commandment. We've talked about this. The law of God, the Ten Commandments are never done away with in the New Testament. In fact, they are reiterated and they are broadened quite often, not only by Jesus, but by the disciples. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 through 32, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. See, the seventh commandment speaks to lust. It speaks to the second glance, the fantasy, to pornography. It condemns divorce and remarriage for any other reason other than sexual immorality or desertion, right? Which Paul goes on to clarify in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It condemns sex outside of marriage and the abuse or neglect of sex inside of marriage. It speaks of the sexual sins of the heart and the sexual sins of the imagination. Basically, the seventh commandment covers it all. And see, here's where it gets uncomfortable. Because we have a tendency to sit in our little churches and go, yeah, Byron, that old world's sure gotten out of control with all of its sexual perversions. But as it turns out, those who profess to be Christians are pretty out of step with the ethics of the seventh commandment. Tim Keller, commenting on the seventh commandment, said this about his New York City church. He says, we're just like the rest of the city. If I preach on the issues of sexual sin, everybody gets real quiet. The National Association of Evangelicals recently found out that 44% of millennials have had sex outside of marriage. 77% of Christian men ages 18 to 35 have looked at pornography at least once a month. Now, 35% of all Christian men have had an affair, and, and that's the best we can do because, surprise, surprise, people lie. See, this isn't a problem out there. It's a problem in here. See, it's not the world that's out of step with the ethics of the seventh commandment. It's the church. It's us. It's me. The seventh commandment is a giant red light saying to us, stop what you're doing, turn around, and go the other way. Now, here's the problem with preaching this sermon for me or any pastor. It's because our tendency is to want to be liked, right? I know that ship sailed for some of you three years ago. That's cool. I'm good with it. I'm good with it. We want people to think we're, we're cool. We, we don't want to be seen as prudish. We don't want to be seen as a Christian killjoy who equates following Jesus with misery and denim skirts and bonnets and churning your own butter and all that kind of stuff. But listen, if you actually follow like the scriptures and, and, and what it lays out, you'll see that the Bible is anything but prudish about sex. Like if you follow the seventh commandment, you'll see that the Bible isn't regressive in its sexual ethic, but it's actually quite progressive in its sexual ethic. And so what I want to do is just look at this sermon under two headings today, right? And again, I took these two headings from David Strain, so it's not original to me. I'm not that smart, okay? I got a guy from high school here. He can back me up on that. So the first one is this. I want to look at it under the creation template for sexuality and the gospel template for sexuality, all right? So first, let's look at the creation template for sexuality. So in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So first things first, gender is given by God. We have to start there. We have to understand that gender is not some social construct. God made us male and female. That our gendered natures reflect the image of God in their diversity and in their compatibility. 
So if you look, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there's unity, there's diversity in God, there's equality in God with differing roles. It's the same with gender. We are both equal in God's sight, but we are created for different complementary roles, right? We are good complementarians here at this church is what we believe. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone, that I will make a helper fit for him. So God said, this old boy needs somebody that's suitable for him, right? He doesn't need to live alone. Men are awful when they live alone. They're nasty, right? So he made Eve, and he made them emotionally and physically compatible. God walked Eve down the aisle. He gave her to Adam, and what does Adam do the minute he sees his bride? In Genesis chapter 2, 23, he breaks out in song. What does he say? This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. God goes on to say that those two shall become one flesh. That human sexual union is intended to be an intimate celebration and expression of the unity and diversity of God when he joins a man and woman together in marriage. Again, David Strain says, to tear sex from its context in marriage is to shatter its meaning and to rob it of its value. That's why the seventh commandment addresses all manner of sexual sin under the rubric specifically of adultery. When it might have, been when it might have used any other form of sexual sin as a general, general category heading, it uses adultery because God intends to teach us in the seventh commandment that marriage is central and normative and the only appropriate context for sex and for sexuality. So that means to be faithful in understanding and expressing our sexuality requires us to recognize that gender and sexual identity, they're not invented by us, nor are they merely assigned to us by others, they're given to us by God. And we must learn in humility to accept our embodied selves as men and women and recognize that sex, in God's purposes, is designed to cement the loving relationship of one man and one woman for life in the covenant of marriage. Okay? And this is where a lot of you, I'm sorry to say, had poor Bible teaching growing up, right? Because the biblical vision of sex is not prudish or phobic at all, right? And I remember growing up in youth group, that's kind of a lot of times how we were taught, right? And if you're my age, you can shake your head and go, yeah, because you remember sitting there hearing your youth pastor go, you want herpes? Just have sex, right? And, and, and it was those kind of things that, that we were taught. But see, in the proper framework, the Bible actually shows sex in a very positive and affirming light. If you read the Song of Solomon, you'll see what I'm talking about. And don't read it just like as a metaphor. It's like, oh, it's God's love between us and, and, and you know, God and us. And, and no, no it, it's Solomon writing about his girl, okay? And if you read it, I promise you, you'll blush and you might start fanning yourself a little bit in a couple parts. That's how it's written. We studied 1 Corinthians this summer. And in 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 19... Paul says to flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. So what Paul says is that outside the context of covenantal married sex, we're not free to use our bodies however we want. God has a design that we must submit to and reflect on. And then in chapter 7, he turns right back around and listen to what he says in verses 1 through 5. Now concerning the matters about which I wrote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but... 
Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife. That's a good verse. And each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. Another good verse. And likewise, the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. See, Paul's not some prude at all. He's like, hey, it's not good for a man to be alone, right? Find a wife, have sex, good verse, right? He goes on, husbands, give your wife her conjugal rights, good verse. Men, you ought to go home today. Yes, ma'am, reporting for duty. I'm here. I'm here. But listen, like, Paul's also very realistic in this. He says sexual temptation doesn't just go away because you're married. And if you're a man in here that goes, yep, never struggled again, liar, all right? It's an ongoing fight. So Paul says the way we combat it is to make sure that there is a regular coming together as husband and wife, where two become one. And what's crazy is Paul's a single man, right? We think he was married and she probably died, is is most likely what scholars and historians think. But when he's writing this, he's single, but he's still celebrating the joy of sex, saying that sex in the proper context brings glory to God. That sex brings glory and only makes sense in the lifelong union of one man with one woman. And he says that template is not something I made up. That template was established all the way back at the beginning when God made us. It's grounded in creation. And so if you have a problem with that, then you have a big problem. And that problem is you're probably not a Christian, okay? Because that's the creation mandate for sexuality, Now let's look at the gospel meaning of sexuality, our second headline, or uh, yeah, heading, not headline, heading, all right? Told you I wasn't that smart. The Bible uses all sorts of metaphors to describe how God relates to us. So it says he's our father, our judge, our king, our shepherd. But when the Bible intends to describe the bond of redeeming love between God and his people, he always turns to the metaphor of marriage. Over and over again, you'll find it in the scriptures. Isaiah 54, 5. Jay read it this morning. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. Jeremiah three twenty. Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. Hosea 2.16, and in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. And if you read that out, he goes on to talk about how he will betroth us, right? That's marriage language. He betroths us in faithfulness. Paul takes this step further in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 through 32. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. And that mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So what's Paul doing? Right? He's quoting Genesis chapter 2, verse 21. He's grounding all of this in the gospel, and he's saying that, hey, marriage refers to Christ and the church. So in other words, he's saying that sex is the symbol of our union with Jesus in the gospel. So the union of husband and wife is the great metaphor for the redeeming love of God for sinners like me and you in Jesus Christ. And Paul says for us as husbands to love our wives 
as Christ loved the church, to love them to the point that if it means we lay down our lives for them, that we do it. Once again, David Strain says, The pattern in the template of our sexual intimacy and our marital fidelity is the purity and faithful love of Jesus for his bride, the church. And that is why sex, sexual intimacy, is sacred. Casual sex is a contradiction in terms. It's an oxymoron. Sex and God's purpose is a picture of the gospel of grace of a believing sinner's union with the Savior. Sex is sacred, and it can never be toyed with or treated flippantly or casually. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.15, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Should you then take that member of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. See, what we do with our bodies matters because our bodies as believers are united to Christ. So sex is the symbol of our union with Jesus in the gospel, that it's a sacred thing that we should not treat casually. So part of what it means to honor and to serve Jesus as Christians is to honor and to serve our spouses faithfully for his sake. It's to flee sexual immorality for his sake. It means to stop being so casual with our kids, right? Like so many of us are. Like it's no big deal. I mean, we did it. We survived. We're okay, right? I mean, I can't talk to my kids about it because, you know, we broke this command. Well, okay, I get that that might be a little bit difficult, but I'm sorry. Did the Bible change? Just because you violated it doesn't mean like God goes, oh, well, you messed up. Yeah, here, let me... I'll just change that, right? You don't know. It hasn't changed. It hasn't changed at all. And that casual view of sex is not only unbiblical, but it's sinful. See, it means to take this command seriously. It means that radical action may be required. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. See, what Jesus is saying there is that sexual sin always starts in the mind before it proceeds to physical action. That's why it always goes with the eyes. It goes to what we see, what we want, and then it proceeds to something physical. He goes to the hands, right? So it starts in the mind, and it proceeds out to physical action. And so what he's saying is that sexual sin is like playing with fire. It's deadly. So either you put it to death or it's going to eventually kill you. So that means, as he said, that radical action may be required. So I'll give you some very practical, concrete advice, okay? You understand? Some of these things are not like just straight out of Scripture, but I think they're things that are helpful. So first and foremost, if you're married, you might want to break off that inappropriate relationship. Well, I mean, Byron, we're just friends, right? There's nothing physical going on. That doesn't matter. You are still giving yourself over relationally and emotionally to someone who is not your spouse. That's inappropriate. You need to stop. Studying for the sermon, I heard a story a pastor told about uh, a couple in their church, and, and, and these two couples were, were really good friends with one another. Well, the man did all the grocery shopping in his marriage, and the woman in the other relationship did all the grocery shopping in their marriage. And so what they did was they would meet up once a week in the grocery store, push the cart around together, and just chit-chat and talk and catch up, and then go get a cup of coffee afterwards and just go home. That's inappropriate. You're spending time with someone else and you're giving part of yourself up to someone who is not your spouse. Break off that relationship. 
dress modestly, right? We, we could go there all, all day long, right? And that goes for older women to younger women, okay? And, and ladies, girls, students. It ain't just people your age that are looking, okay? There's a lot of perverted men out there. A lot of perverted men out there. Especially as they get older. A lot of these guys just get worse, okay? I promise you. I promise you. Use an internet filter. Something like Covenant Eyes are accountable to you and put it on all of your devices, on your phone, on your tablet. Listen, get accountability men. And listen, men, there's not another man in this room that if you walk up and say, hey man, I've, I've been struggling with looking at porn, they're going to go, no way. Because if they do, they're lying. Because that's a struggle for every man in this room. Every man in this room. Young men, listen to me, if you're in your parents' house and you want to stop looking at porn and you know that it's something that's got a hold of you, I'll tell you the quickest way to get rid of it. Go tell your parents that you're looking at it. I mean, if you want to be done with it, it may take radical action. When I was in Plains, the kids got school-issued laptops. And a lot of these kids' boys would come to me in particular and talk to me about all the porn they'd been looking at on the school-issued laptop. And I'd always tell them two things. You want to be done with it? Tell your parents first, and then you need to walk into, uh, into the IT teacher's office and tell them what you've been doing. And the ones who were serious about it, they did it. And I promise you, they put a stop to it right then and there. Parents, listen to me. Pornography is a major problem. And it's not just attacking our, our, our teenagers. It is. It's now moved to our preteens at an alarming rate. According to Fight the New Drug, it's a pornography website, they believe that the first age of exposure is 11, but the overwhelming majority of people now say it's 8 years old. I mean, part of that is you're a moron if you're giving an 8-year-old a smartphone. I mean, I say that in all kindness as a pastor. But there are some things you can do. And listen, I'm about to blow your mind, okay? Parents, you ready? Get ready. I'm going to blow your mind. You can be the parent. Be a good place to start. You can charge the phones in your room every night. You can say no devices behind closed doors. Right? And I know some of you have got teenagers. You say it's already too late for that. Okay, but you've got younger ones. If you have kids my age, start now. We've already started that. You take that laptop back to the bedroom? Nope. Get back down the hall. Back down the hall. We're not doing that. Parents, I'm going to blow your mind. You ready? You claim the absolute right to look at your kid's phone or device at any time you wish. There should be no accounts that you can't access. Well, Byron, that's just a little far. You know, stare phone. Well, odds are, since most kids don't work jobs anymore, you paid for it. And so by rights, that's your phone. And listen to me. I would rather have my kid mad at me in the short term than to protect them from a lifetime of addiction that will destroy their life, okay? Just throwing just some simple things out there. And I get it. I'm learning those things too, okay? I, I'm learning those things. I, I've still got a long ways to go. Mine are young still. See, the seventh commandment is calling you to pursue purity for yourself and for your household. It's calling you to pursue purity when you're alone, when you're together, when you're single, when you're dating, when you're married. And the reason why is because our maker is our husband. 
We have a Savior in Jesus Christ who loved us and who gave himself up for us, and we want to honor him in all of our relationships. So what do we do when we fail and fall? Because let's be real honest. All of us find ourselves guilty of this one. And if you aren't guilty, listen, stick around. All right, please, I got a letter jacket for you. I would love to have a ceremony afterwards. I'm going to put it on you and be like, hey, this guy has never broke this commandment. This girl, perfect. Because see, no matter how good you look on the outside, if you're honest, men and women, we have sinned sexually in our thinking. We've sinned in our doing. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 and 10 says this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. See, that scripture right there shows us that scripture condemns all breaches of the seventh commandment. All of them. And all of us are find ourselves in that passage. But if we just stopped right there, we would walk out hanging our heads and feeling bad and not thinking that there's any hope or mercy or grace. And that's why verse 11 is there. Look what Paul says. And such were some of you. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See, he says, Jesus has been faithful to us, his bride. We're adulterers. We've all broken this commandment with our hearts, with our eyes, with our bodies, but Jesus loves his adulterous people. See, if you're in Christ, when God looks at you, he does not see your adulterous heart. Instead, he sees his son, Jesus. I heard a great story about this this week. There was a, a young woman who had had an affair, committed adultery on her husband several years in the past, and she'd lived with the mistake for years and years and years, and she finally decided it was time for her to come clean to her husband, and so she sends the kids to her parents' house. She waits for him to come home after work, and when she comes home, he, she spills her guts. She tells him everything that happened. And like you would expect, the husband was devastated. He cried, he was angry, he was mad, and finally he just gets up and he leaves the house, just goes away. And minutes turn into hours and hours and hours. And she's scared. She's thinking, I knew this was going to happen. I knew he was going to leave me. I knew I shouldn't have done this. I knew I should have kept it to myself. And suddenly the husband comes back in the house. And he's carrying a shopping bag with him. And he grabs his wife by the hand. He takes her back to the bedroom. And he undresses his wife. And reaches in the shopping bag and pulls out a white silk nightgown. And he puts it on his wife. And he says, I choose to see you as Jesus sees you. That's how God sees us. See, in Jesus, God has not forgotten us. He's taken the punishment for our sin. Our husband has loved his wife well, and he's given himself up for all of us. He's paid the penalty that our adultery deserves. Such were some of you. That's who you used to be. So listen to me. If you look at porn and you need help, 
Maybe you're sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend. Maybe you want to be faithful to Jesus, but you just keep finding yourself stuck in a pattern of behavior and you feel enslaved to your appetites. Maybe you've had an affair. Maybe you've shattered your marriage. Maybe it's broken. Is there any hope for you? Yes. Such were some of you. You have been washed and sanctified and justified in the name of Jesus. By his spirit, there's a way out of the darkness. There's a way out of the shadows. See, that path starts at the foot of the cross. So brothers and sisters, stop hiding in the shadows. The truth of our heart, yours, mine, will be laid bare before the eyes of the Lord to whom we all must give an account one day. So today, listen to your spiritual GPS. It's blinking. Turn around and turn back to Jesus. So as we stand and as we sing, you can stand and you can pray right there in your heart and you can say, Jesus, make me clean. And I promise you one thing, he will. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day and I thank you for all that you've given us. Father, thank you that the seventh commandment is there. And Father, I, I, I pray that we all see that we are guilty, which is, is part of the reason we have the Ten Commandments, is to show us that we can't do it on our own, that we're guilty of violating all of them, but there is a Savior, there is a Redeemer who was capable of doing what we could not do, and His name was Jesus. And so Father, I thank You that Jesus never broke this command. I thank You that Jesus was faithful to adulterous people like me, that Jesus went to the cross and he paid the penalty that my adultery deserves. That my sexual sin deserves. That, that lustful heart, to, those things deserve, Father. So that I could be made right with you. And so that now when you look at me, you no longer see me, but you choose to see me as Jesus does. So I pray that that resonated with somebody in here today. Maybe they've been struggling with the sin or the guilt of the past. Maybe they're struggling with the sin or the guilt of now. And they just need to realize that there is love and grace and mercy and forgiveness found in Jesus Christ. Father, I think every one of us can admit areas right now where that red light's blinking. And I pray that we would take that as a warning and that we would turn around and turn back to Jesus. And so as we stand and sing right now, Father, that we can know that you have cleaned us, that you have loved us, and that you've forgiven us. Thank you for this church, Father. Thank you for what a blessing it is to be your pastor. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. If you